Well, good morning, church. I'm Pastor John, Discipleship Pastor. I'm so honored to be bringing God's Word to you this morning. And I don't know about you, but for the last couple of weeks, it seems like we've left church and we've left Jonah in sort of a cliffhanger. At the end of week one, we talked about running, uh, running from God as Jonah was running from God, and we ended that with Jonah in the belly of a great fish, and then we came back. And last week, it was running with God. However, we, we jumped into chapter four just enough to see that as God saved the Ninevites, and, and God was pleased to, that Jonah was displeased, that God saving them displeased uh, Jonah. So we kind of left off in a weird place. And, and finally this morning, we're going to get to some resolution in this story. So we're closing out our series titled Run. And as we do that, we, we want to reflect and, and really just go back into to verse 10 of chapter 3. So Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10. And, and thinking about how Jonah had brought, he'd finally obeyed God. And he brought that message to the Ninevites and, and God saving them as they believed in him. And then we saw that, that Jonah was displeased in, in chapter 4, verse 1. And from the Hebrew text, we would, we would say that, that based on what we read, that Jonah saw their salvation and he saw it as an evil thing. And in doing so, he burns with anger. That Hebrew word for anger is also the one for burn. So he burns with anger. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced many times in my life where, where things have happened, where God was moving and working in such a way that, that it displeased me. You know, there have been times where, where God's just allowing something to happen, and maybe I just viewed it as, um, as unjust or unwarranted or, I don't know, for whatever reason, it just didn't seem right to me, and it displeased me. And sometimes it even made me angry. And I think we can all think back on times in our life where God was doing and God was allowing things to happen in such a way that we didn't understand what was happening or maybe we, we thought we didn't and we got angry. God's actions displeased us. Oftentimes when we think back to those, there were things that brought us great pain. Things that, that we struggled to get through. Maybe it was a loss of a loved one. And to be honest with you, in the last few years, it seems like we've experienced loss in a whole different way. It seems like most of us in, in one form or another have experienced the loss of a loved one in these last couple years. But maybe it hasn't been the loss of a loved one, but the loss of a relationship or the loss of employment. But we've all experienced some type of loss. We've all experienced things in our life where we were, maybe we were displeased and perhaps we even got angry with God and, and to be honest with you, maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe as, as you walk through this life, you are struggling. You're struggling to see God's goodness in something and, and you were walking through something angry at God, displeased that he would allow something to happen. Because that's where we find Jonah. God relented on the Ninevites in chapter three. They believed in God and Jonah saw it as an evil thing and he got angry. So we've made it all the way here and we have some, some tough questions to ask of the text, to be honest with you. But I wanna re-engage because before we do that, we just need to refresh on how we got to where we are today. 
So going back to chapter one, it starts out by the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, and we remember that the word of the Lord is prominent throughout the Old Testament, that the word of the Lord would come to prophets, the prophets would be obedient to God. Then the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, we see a divergence from that. We see Jonah be disobedient to the Lord. Then we see Jonah, in an attempt to flee the Lord, God tells him to arise, go to Nineveh, uh, Jonah, I almost said Joseph, Jonah arises, but tries to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So he goes and goes down to Joppa, goes down to a boat, and then goes down into the boat. And I want you to remember the repetition of words because we have to take note of those. Because while Jonah was literally going down and and was continuing a path of, of going down, there's also a figurative going down away from the Lord as he was disobedient to him. Then we remember as Jonah was sleeping, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Great storm came about. Frightened the sailors. They thought the boat was going to break up and everyone was going to die. So the captain of the boat goes down to where Jonah's sleeping, reiterates that which God had told Jonah. Goes down and says, Jonah, arise. So Jonah comes up on top, of, on top of the deck. They've already identified that it was Jonah who's responsible for the storm but they know that they have to appease the supreme God over the heavens and over the storm in order that they would live. Now we remember that these pagan sailors believed in a God named Baal Shemem. They believed him to be the Lord of the heavens, the supreme God who would control the sea and everything else. But they would soon discover that it was Yahweh, Jonah's God, who controlled all of these things. So Jonah tells them that the only way that this storm is going to die down is if they take him and hurl him into the sea. But before they did that, and important to note that they, were, that they worshiped the pagan god because before they cast Jonah into the sea, now they call out to Yahweh. These pagan sailors call out to Yahweh because in essence what they are doing right here is exactly what Pontius Pilate would do in the New Testament when he washed his hands of Jesus That's exactly what these sailors would do. They would wash their hands of the responsibility of Jonah's life. They would now put that on Yahweh. Yahweh desires that we throw him overboard. That is you. That's all you. That's not us. So, with that, they throw Jonah overboard. He goes overboard and is swallowed. The Lord appoints, let me say that properly, the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. While in there, he prays a psalm of thanksgiving. He meditated on God's law day and night as we saw because in his prayer back to the Lord, he is just reciting that which he is hidden in his heart back to the Lord. So the the Lord, it's in the, it, the Lord finds it pleasing to have this great fish vomit Jonah out onto dry land. And when he does, the Lord then calls upon him a second time. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. This time the Lord gives Jonah the message and Jonah is obedient. He proclaims to the, me- the message to the Ninevites and it says from the greatest to the least, they believe in God and they put on sackcloth as an act of submission humility. A revival broke out in Nineveh to such proportions that the king would hear about it and he too would believe in the Lord and take on that reverence, that submission to the Lord. Now we reach verse 10 and that's where God relents upon the Ninevites 
and then chapter four, verse one, but it displeased Jonah and he burned in anger, which brings us to our first point. And that's that running against God seeks self-supremacy. That running against God seeks self-supremacy. And here we are, and the, and the question on all of our minds this morning is this. What is Jonah's problem, right? Throughout this book, God has called him to do things, and Jonah is just being disobedient. What is his problem? The answer is pretty simple. Jonah hated them. Jonah hated the Ninevites and didn't want to go. And it's deep. It's a deep hatred. And really at this point, we're going to, need to, we're going to do what we see on a lot of TV shows. And that's where we're telling this story, but now we're going to flash back to something that maybe the story hasn't told up to this point, but we know. If you're a fan of Star Wars, they started Star Wars on like Star Wars 4, and I'll, I'll just say that I'm the least qualified person to talk about Star Wars. I literally know nothing other than this fact, if it's a fact. I think they started on Star Wars 4. 22 years later, they went back to the beginning. I see somebody waiting, nod their head, yes, perfect, awesome. We're going to do the exact same thing because that's how we're going to understand what's happening with Jonah right here. Why does Jonah hate Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire. And to put that mildly, the Assyrian Empire was extremely violent. They were extremely cruel. Regarding Assyria, one commentator wrote this, that Assyria had been laying her hand for some generations upon the nations on the Mediterranean coast. And it was the hand of fierce and ferocious mastery. No considerations of pity were permitted to stand in the way of the Assyrian policy. There was unsparing slaughter to begin with. And the king seemed to gloat in their inscriptions over the spectacle presented by the field of battle. They described how it was covered with the corpses of the vanquished. And the carnage was followed up by fiendish inflictions upon individual cities. The leading men as at Lashius, when Sennacherib had conquered that cities, were led forth, seized by the executioners and subjected to various punishments, all of them filled to the brim with horror. And the commentator goes on to describe very graphically and vividly the horror of these things that would come about. They were unbelievable. They performed torture in such a way that they would leave vivid and graphic, let's call them reminders, around the city displayed publicly to terrify and to terrorize the people and leave behind long enduring impressions of Assyrian vengeance. And no man in Israel was ignorant of these things. Many men in Israel witnessed these things and perhaps Jonah may have witnessed them as well. That may be one reason why Jonah hated them. Another one is that there was an awareness and Jonah likely had an awareness that Assyria would be the downfall of Israel, that Nineveh was head of a resurgent Assyrian military state. Perhaps Jonah foresaw and feared the movement of the Assyrian armies towards Israel. The stigma of being instrumental in, in sparing one of Israel's greatest enemies may have been more than Jonah was able to bear. But I don't want to spend too much time on the why. And we can camp out on and speculate as to why we think Jonah hated the Ninevites. Important to know that he did. But I don't want to camp out there because it's largely irrelevant and it misses the point, doesn't it? God knew all of these things and he still called Jonah. 
God knew how Jonah would respond, and he still called him. He knew the condition of Jonah's heart, and he still called him. God knows all of your whys. God knows all of my whys. And he hasn't given us a caveat to make disciples of who we want to make disciples with. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to to partner with the IMB, the International Mission Board. As Southern Baptists, every time we tithe, part of our tithe money goes to the International Mission Board and funds Southern Baptist missionaries all over the world. I had an opportunity to go to India with a team and, and train local pastors. We also spent time in one of the larger cities. And while we were there, one of the things that, that I experienced multiple times throughout the day was the calls to prayer. There'd be loudspeakers over the city and the calls to prayer would come out in Arabic, the language of the Quran. While we were there, one day we went to a local mosque to share the gospel. Now mosques aren't like a single building, but multiple buildings on one property, often with a large courtyard. And the one that we went to was one of the largest at one point. So people from all over the world had come and trekked and worshiped in this mosque. So we go to the mosque and we get out and we, we go past and we have to leave, I think, our shoes and we go inside the courtyard and an almost palpable feeling comes over me. Standing in the place where millions had once trekked to worship. Standing in the place where Middle Easterners had once trekked to worship. I remember standing there and almost audible calls to prayer were playing through my head. It felt like this war was raging inside of me. This was who God called me to share the gospel of Jesus with that day. This was who God called me to share love and hope with. On September 11th, 2001, I was standing on the H-53 Pablo helicopter in Albuquerque, New Mexico, inspecting a rotor blade when I was notified that the second twin tower had just been hit. Immediately, we were locked down. Military, civilian, you couldn't leave the hangar, let alone the base, nor could you come in. There was no moving about, but like many of you, feelings started to come up inside of me that we need to make sure that this doesn't happen again, that we need to protect our country and we need to do it quickly. But then also feelings that those who were responsible needed to be brought to justice. So as we went into conflict in Afghanistan, I volunteered to do tours there. And then as we went into Iraq, I volunteered for tours there as well. And in God's providence, he did not have me go. He had lots of brothers go many of which never returned home. 
But on this day, in this mosque, God saw it pleasing to reveal to me that I didn't love those that I saw as takers of the lives of my brothers. And I had to choose to love them right there. I had to choose to love and share the gospel of Christ with them. But God's good, isn't he? Because the same way that he had called me to go to Honduras, and in the same way, will you go to these people? He now challenged me again with, if I desire, will you go to these people? And again, and again, and again, he would challenge me. Because God desired full surrender of my heart. He desired full surrender of Jonah's heart, and he desires full surrender of your heart. Are there people in your life like that? People that you don't feel like deserve the gospel. Are there people that you don't feel like deserve God's mercy and his grace his forgiveness, his salvation. Sometimes we think, of, when we think about that, we think about those people maybe who have taken the lives of others. Maybe people who have taken the lives of those who have been close to us. Maybe there are people that we don't feel like deserve God's grace because they've taken other things from us. Perhaps they've taken things from our children. An innocence that can never be gotten back. Even they are worthy of God's forgiveness and salvation, right? Because when we reflect deeply on who we are, while our sin may look different, we are no more worthy or deserving of God's grace. We're no more worthy or deserving of his forgiveness, worthy of the blood of Jesus. And friends, when we think that we are, it's because we don't understand that salvation is a gift. We think that if I'm just good enough, finally I will earn, finally I will deserve God's grace. That if I serve like this for so long that surely I now deserve God's grace. But if we feel like we ever get to a point where we deserve it, then we have robbed God of his glory. And we have devalued the precious blood of Jesus that is shed on my behalf and on your behalf. As you go and make disciples, are there people that you feel like don't deserve God's mercy and grace? If so, repent. Repent and ask God that he would soften your heart. That if it please him, that he push you deeper. When we feel justified in not doing it, we have, posi we have positioned ourselves as a, as a God, lowercase g, We've positioned ourselves as a God. Now we think that the God and the, crea the creator of all things has to answer to us. 
Secondly, what we see here is that running against God seeks self-appeasement. Running against God seeks self-appeasement. In chapter one, we saw how the sailors and Jonah understood that the only way that they would survive would be to hurl Jonah overboard and appease God that he would command the sea to cease from raging. But we see now that Jonah feels like he needs to be appeased, chapter four, verse two. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's quoting scripture back to God in this last part. Verse three, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You know, in my house, this is the type of phrase that my mom would have popped your mouth. If it, if it came out, you were gonna get popped. Think about the way that this starts. Oh Lord, is this not what I said? What he in here, what he right here is doing is he's going back to chapter one, verse one, where the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And what in essence Jonah is saying is, God, I heard you, now you're gonna hear me. Sometimes my mom would say, you're on thin ice. And if this was one of those times, this is where the ice just gave out and someone's looking for a lifeline. How does the Lord respond? Verse four, and the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? Is that what we expect? To be honest with you, it's not what I expect. I kind of feel like I expect God to just drop the hammer on him like, son, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? But I wonder if that's just my response to such blatant disobedience and, and blatant disrespect and then just trying to assign it to God. Because that's not at all what God does. God's patient. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah's not alone in this, is he? How many times do things happen in your life and happen in my life and we think that God owes us some type of explanation as if God has to justify himself in our eyes. Since when does the creation rule over the creator? Since when does the clay get to tell the potter what it should do or make the potter justify why it did what it did? And it sounds ludicrous when we think about it from that perspective, doesn't it? With the intelligent minds that God's given us, with the grandeur that we know of our world, that if we were molding clay, and the clay were to ever look back at us and be like, you probably don't want to do that. I don't want you to do that. Don't do that. Or, why did you do that? It sounds almost laughable. This dumb clay would have the audacity to question me as I'm molding it but we're the clay. It must sound similar to God as he's hearing that. But praise God for his patience and his grace when we mistake our roles and we do that. When we become so puffed up in our pride that we think that God has to justify himself to us. Finally, Running against God seeks self-centeredness. Running against God seeks self-centeredness. Verse five. 
So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. I'm going to pause right here. I wonder, because God told Jonah that in 40 days he was going to hefe. That's that Hebrew term. Jonah thought that God used that term to mean overturn. God used that term to mean turn or to change. But I wonder if Jonah's sitting out there like, day 41's coming. I wonder if Jonah's out there like, you know, God's going to come to his mind. He's going to come to his senses at one of these points. And when he does, these people are in for it. He will overthrow them or overturn them. Or I wonder if he was just out there like, all these new converts, man, you're doing that wrong. You're doing that wrong. You don't even know how to pray. And just pointing fingers. I pray that that's not us. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And I want to pause here briefly because, again, we see repetition. We see God appointing things, and going all the way back to chapter 1, we see God appoint a great fish. Now in chapter 4, we see God appoint a plant, God appoint a worm, God appoint a scorching east wind. Explicitly, we see God as the one true God, don't we? Jonah 1, I think it's verse 9, Jonah says that you are the God over the sea and the dry land, right? God is over the fish, he appoints a fish, and he ceases a storm. We see God over the sea. He creates a plant from the ground. He creates a worm to then destroy it. So we see him as God over the dry land, but then... He creates a scorching east wind, so we see him as the God who's over everything in between. So God is confirmed in being the one true God here in this text, based on what Jonah started this whole story with. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this is the second time that God says this. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle, do you see what God is saying right here? That Jonah's more concerned for this plant than anything else. And really when we look back through the story, well first, Jonah wasn't really concerned for the plant. If you look at verse six, the only concern that Jonah had for the plant was the shade that it was going to provide to save him from some discomfort. But throughout the story, Jonah has not demonstrated that he's cared about anything. We can make a case that he cared about the sailors in chapter one, but Jonah was gonna die either way. So sure, thanks Jonah for letting the sailors live by telling them to hurl you overboard. Apart from that, the only person that Jonah's cared about this entire story has been Jonah. He hasn't cared about God. He hasn't cared about his fellow man. He doesn't love either of them. He's not demonstrating his love for either of them. 
He's focused on what he wants, what makes him comfortable, what makes him happy. He's positioned himself as a God, lowercase g, thinking that, that he should have a say in who the Lord relents upon. What makes him happy? You know, Pastor Ed's talked about happiness a number of times and how happiness is a fleeting emotion that we chase. And if we're chasing happiness, we never find it because it's always changing. But I want to challenge you that if you want to chase something, why don't you chase one of the fruits of the Spirit? Maybe start with the first one, the one that Jonah obliterated, love. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, and he said to them, to him, the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Finally, we get to the heart of the whole book. Jonah was struggling to love. He struggled to love God. He struggled to love his fellow man. We were given some hope when he made a plea for this plant, but even that was selfish. We see example after example after example through this story of the failure of one of God's prophets. But God didn't give us this story just so we could pick Jonah's life apart. He gave us the story so that we would learn from it, that we would apply it to our own life, that we would see his grandeur in a more beautiful picture of the Lord. And throughout this book, we see God demonstrate time after time after time that he is a God and his character is one of love, patience, forgiveness, and that he is eager to do those things. We see that our story is a lot like Jonah's story. That sometimes we struggle to really love others. We struggle to be reconciled to one another. And I don't want you to leave here this morning struggling to love or be reconciled. So I want to offer you a challenge this week. I want to challenge you to love others better than you did last week. And in our minds, we could be like, oh, that's, I can just deceive myself. No, tangibly, I want to challenge you to love others more selflessly, in humility, with an eagerness to be patient and offer forgiveness, regardless of whether or not you think they deserve it. I want you to do this for a week and see how God begins to move. Especially if one of those people is more difficult to love. Can you imagine how our lives would be changed if we did that? Can you imagine how our, our families would better reflect what God's desire is for us? How we would naturally become better disciple makers. That more naturally we will go. And it will start in our families. And it will go out to our communities to our cities, and to the ends of the earth. Because that's Jesus' command to us, to go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But friends, we cannot go and make disciples if we are not disciples. 
And I pray that if you are not a disciple of Christ, if you have not surrendered to Christ, that this day you would choose that as the Lord's leading upon your heart, you would profess faith in him, that you would believe in the one who paid it all on the cross, that you would repent of your sin, understanding that, that life is only found through him. But if you are a believer and you're struggling to forgive, struggling to go, struggling to be obedient, I wanna invite you right now to come and lay that at the cross. Lay down those struggles, lay down those burdens, cast your anxieties on him. I wanna pray with you and and I'm gonna invite you to stand right now and we'll pray together. And I wanna challenge you to just be obedient and just move as God's calling you to move. Let's pray. Most heavenly and gracious Father God, we just come before you as a holy and sovereign God over all things. Father, you are rich in mercy and love. Your forgiveness and a grace abound. And God, we confess that we are just like Jonah. We confess to love you, yet we don't follow you. We struggle with obedience. We struggle with positioning ourselves over you. Father, we thank you that we can be forgiven, that the blood of Jesus cleanses all of our sin. That, Father, we don't have to walk out of here bearing the guilt of our sin. But, Father, that Jesus would take our place, that Jesus would take our place on the cross of Calvary, that one day we will stand before you covered in his perfect righteousness. God, I ask that as your spirit is moving in the hearts of, of people today, that they would just be obedient, that they would follow you, they would run. In Jesus' name, amen.